0: I had an elderly grandmother. You'll love this. She did laundry once a week, but she cooked every day. She had one of those little short aprons, and she had one. And she would wipe her fingers sometimes in the center of the apron above her belly button. So there was like a brown shellac. It just, it never came out that just reeked of caramelized onions and Burnt chicken fat and vinegar, just this incredible smell. And I was little, so when she hugged me goodbye, my face is right in the apron. So whenever I remember my grandmother, the first thing that I do is I can smell her apron and can smell her hug.
1: Welcome to the Meals That Made Me from First We Feast. I'm Adam Richmond, your host and resident gastronaut. The meals that we make, enjoy, and share are the heart of who we are. In this series, you'll hear from 10 guests across the culinary world sharing funny, illuminating, and touching stories prompted by their most meaningful food memories. And maybe you'll even be inspired to make a few memorable meals of your own. So let's dive in. My guest today was given a bracelet by the Dalai Lama. After that, the best I can give him is a thorough and loving introduction. He is an Emmy-winning and four-time James Beard award-winning TV personality, chef, writer, and social justice advocate. He has been either the creator, executive producer, and host, or all of the above, of the Bizarre Foods franchise, Driven by Food, The Zimmern List, What's Eating America, Dining with Death, The Big Food Truck Tip, All-Star Academy, and many, many more. Folks in the Twin Cities may know him from radio shows like Chowhounds and Food Court. HGTV viewers may know him from Rebecca's Garden and tip Ickle old Mary Ellen. He's devoted his life to exploring and promoting cultural acceptance, tolerance, and understanding through food. This year, you can find him judging the epic culinary battle Iron Chef Quest for an Iron Legend on Netflix and on outdoor channels, Andrew Zimmern's Wild Game Kitchen. He's a great dad, a superb home cook with an enviable collection of both hot sauce and soda pop. He also happens to be... Sorry. Mm. He also happens to be one of my most dear friends, valued counselors, and beloved mentors. He's a continued source of inspiration for me.
0: Sorry, my voice is quavering, and I'm sorry, Andrew. I know it's it's nerve-wracking, because I know the next sentence is going to be, and the third best kisser. He's
1: a continued source of inspiration for me, and to millions, and once put in print, You want a piece of Adam Richman? You got to go through me first. Please welcome Andrew Zimmern. I I did say that once, didn't I? You did. That was a big moment. That was a big moment. Um, So you, like me, grew up in a Jewish family in New York. One thing also that people may not know is, in addition to growing up in a Jewish family on the Upper West Side, Andrew Zimmern babysat Ad-Rock from the Beastie
0: Boys. Adam Harvitz and his dad, Israel Harvitz, lived in your building, Right. Because of various relationships that I had, and who knows who in New York, and growing up in the '60s and '70s, Israel Horovitz was a friend of the families, and yeah, I uh, I got to babysit Ad Rock.
1: That's so awesome. So, with no further ado, wacka doo I want to dive into the meals of your childhood. Well, you credit your grandmother, uh, Henriette, correct? Yeah. For teaching you how to make kosher meals. And I know you cook a lot of her recipes like the dill-kissed matzo ball soup and (laughs) uh, chopped chicken liver on the first night of Passover,
0: which is a lovely homage to our shared heritage. I cook all of her you know, she did 15 dishes. Really? I mean, that's what, yeah. I mean, because everything else was either a sandwich or breakfast. But, you know, she did, you know, she did a pickled tongue and cabbage. You know, she did the roast chicken. She did the brisket. She did all the, the Jewish grandmother classics. And then she had a couple of dishes. My grandfather was more conservative and... And so for a while, while they were not rich, they had a housekeeper come in once a week on Fridays and leave dinner out for them and stuff so that they could have a more conservative style Shabbat and not cook and not turn on electricity and all that other kind of stuff. And she learned how to make a killer goulash from the Hungarian woman that helped them out one day a week. And so those were the kind of things that she cooked. And I had a an older, I'll just say elderly grandmother who was not active. So when she had to take care of a five-year-old, and I was sleeping over there on Saturdays twice a month, she put me on a stool in her kitchen while she cooked. And she would cook all day and into the night for the big meal on Sunday where everyone, all the family would come over, including my dad, and then I'd leave with him and go back home. And so— I learned that stuff. I learned the value that a family dinner table has at my grandmother's house. You'll love this. She she did laundry once a week, but she cooked every day. So <laughs> she had one of those little short aprons and she had one, right? That she would always hang up and she would wipe her fingers sometimes in the center of the apron above her belly button and not use a towel. And so there was like a brown shellac, dry, it just, it never came out of, (laughs) of like, that just reeked of caramelized onions and burnt chicken fat and, you know, vinegar. And I mean, just this incredible smell on her apron. And I was little. So when she hugged me goodbye, if she was wearing her apron on Sunday afternoon, my face is right in the, and, and so when, Whenever I remember my grandmother, the first thing that I do is I can smell her apron and her hug because she didn't wear perfume. She was definitely, you know, Holocaust mentality grandmother. Like at any moment, the world was going to change. She had a pile of blankets in a chest in the bedroom, but she very frivolously would turn the heat down in the New York City apartment that my father and uncle paid for because she thought that she paid for the heat. And it's like they kept saying to her mom, the heat comes with the building. Just turn up the heat. You don't need to be cold, you know, under an Afghan that you crocheted together. There's blankets (laughs) here. Use them. You know, the heat is free. But she had a much different attitude about life, which was why, god forbid she washed an apron more than once a week she was very careful with with every nickel that she ever had
1: wow and that's a perfect segue to the next question i wanted to ask which is about kind of the meals of your mentors So you credit your dad for instilling in you this profound love of food and travel. My folks split when I was about four, like they separated when I was four, divorced when I was about seven. Your folks separated when you were eight, if I'm not mistaken. Your dad moved to the West Village where he befriended, and this blows my mind like this murderer's row here, John Clancy,
0: the Balducci's. Well, there was there was also Craig Claiborne and Alfredo Viazzi and all of these people. That it was essentially was the gay New York City food mafia of the late '60s. And by the way, and part of this life includes
1: you having lunch at James Beard's house. Now, I want to know one memorable meal that that man. Served up in those silk PJs.
0: Well, uh, one of those meals. Easy, easy. So there would be food on several floors. And my father and Andre was always like, you know, stop over. It's an open door party. And if you were in his social circles and they were, you know, they lived a block, block and a half away at 2 Horatio Street. And we, you know, if, if I was still in tow, and usually Sunday I'd go back to my mom's house, but we'd stop for quote unquote brunch or whatever. <laughs> right. And there are a couple things that I remember eating over there that I had never I had never eaten pâté en croûte before. Okay. And so to see terrines wrapped in a beautiful crust and taste so good blew my mm. mind. But the real stunner for me. Okay. Because we were we were Jews. We didn't we didn't have a country club life where you might see this kind of food. <laughs> but I had never seen a whole poached salmon Chilled, decorated with thinly sliced cucumbers as scales Mm. with a herby green sauce vert style mayonnaise to go with it. Now, in those days, I'm talking late 60s, that was fancy party food. And it absolutely blew my mind. I just, I love the taste of it. I love the look of it. I remember being little because I'm short at this time. I haven't grown yet. And so there are these big dining room tables. So I'm face-to-face with the head of this fish, right? And I don't want to make a linkage between the TV show that most people know me by and that salmon head because it has more to do with those little snails in Paris and some of the other restaurant meals that I have on my list to throw your way. But it certainly helped. I mean, seeing a fish with a head on it served somewhere – was, I mean, even when my dad pulled a striped bass out of the ocean, because people didn't want to see a head, he would gut it and take the head off and then grill the fish for everyone at the beach. And we'd sit around the bonfire at night and all the moms and dads would show up with different foods. But you didn't leave the head on the fish. Mm -hmm. I mean, because a lot of people were like, ooh, I don't want to see a head on a fish. But at Beard's house, the head was on the fish. And... I'm staring at that head and <laughs> it, it, so I remember I remember the salmon I I remember the this yellow sponge cake vanilla on vanilla on a pedestal that I kept hoping in subsequent visits there would make its return but as was often the case there would seasonally were not appropriate so the dishes didn't necessarily make a return for a little kid who was only there five times, six times, never went there during the summer because summer I was away in Long Island and, you know, at different times of the year. I remember the roasting pans. I remember looking in the kitchen and seeing a turbotier for the first time, which is a a trapezoidal brass pot that is meant to cook a fish that is shaped like two triangles stuck together. Turbo. Yeah. And, you know, it had a lid. It was beautiful. His cooking equipment was beautiful and all copper. And so to see these things and it just intrigued me. I was, I think what turned me on the most at that place was everyone throwing love and applause his direction. Like that was like, he's cooking food and everyone is worshiping at his altar. And I was like, I like this. Like I had never seen that because you have to remember in restaurants in New York City in the 60s, historically, the star was the person who ran the dining room. Right. The chef was anonymous in the back of the restaurant. So when people talk about the best restaurant in New York in the 60s, arguably, I mean, most people consider it to be Pavillon. Henri Sewell, the restaurateur, ran the dining room there, and he hobnobbed and walked around talking to everyone. No one knows who was in the kitchen at Pavillon, although it wound up being a pretty serious list of people, including Pierre Frenet, Craig Claiborne's collaborator. Um, A lot of famous people of that era came through that restaurant, but you didn't know the chef. So then moving
1: on, I know you never want to harm anyone's business or insult anyone's culture, and that's why you're the best cypher for us as an audience and a tremendous ambassador. As someone who knows you, has eaten with you, has gotten restaurant recommendations from you whilst traveling, you're kind of like a Swiss army knife for food, in my opinion. <laughs> I think that you could speak authoritatively. I mean, we can go on and on, you know, delicious destinations, the Zimmern list. And I think that with Bizarre Foods, that there was always this new uh, new energy. But my question is, was there ever any dish you had on a show that almost made you want to walk away from this juggernaut of a show because it was such an unpleasant meal or such an unpleasant experience. And I I say this deferentially
0: because— No, no, no. I, I, and I know the spirit in which you intend the question. The, ans- the answer is no. And, and the reason is, is that I was doing a magazine—I'll call it a magazine format— You know, it was hour long. We had six to eight stories within each show as we were exploring a place. And while I certainly had, you know, five or six times we had guns uh, drawn us, we were told to get out. Whoa. I was on boats sinking in the ocean. I was in cars sliding off mountains in rainstorms. I mean, there was lots of danger that made me think, all off camera, by the way, That made me think, you know, I'm a dad. Maybe this isn't the job for me. But every time something like that happened, we changed how we produced stuff. When Bizarre Food started, it was myself, a cameraman who did sound, who also set up a stationary second camera so that he had a master wide shot so they always had something to cut to. And it took us nine days to shoot an episode because we were writing the show at night. The producer, who was his wife, I mean, it was three of us, and we went out and made the show. And there was incredible, incredible freedom there. But we didn't have a security person. And I'm not talking about for me. I'm talking about for the team in case, like, you know, I mean, Flash forward, you know, whatever, nine years later, we're walking through the woods of going downstream on a river in search of a fish with a local fisherman, you know, and we're in, what was it, Colombia? And we bumped into the FARC and the colonel who was part of the FARC detachment that we bumped into rather than kidnapping us or doing whatever else he would have done with another piece of show, wanted to show us where a better place to fish was because they had seen the show, you know, and we would be in favelas in Rio and the international narco trafficker who controlled the city of 400,000 people was supplying us with security because he was a fan. But there was a freedom in the beginning in its simplicity, but the food and the enjoyment of it was never a question For me, even the stuff that I privately didn't like, I would rather be a better guest than a snotty TV host.
1: Exactly. And you're the one who taught me that. That, uh, Like, I remember saying that
0: my preferences cannot influence my outward impression. But more importantly, I mean, and look, I'm as guilty as anyone of having broken this rule. But if I'm on television and somebody put something in front of me and we've talked about this before, there was a, we were up in the mountains of Belize with a Maya family that were as impoverished as any family I've ever spent time with. And the only thing they really owned besides these little there were tiny little wooden structures made with like driftwood and found objects and stuff like that was like five or six chickens and two pigs, and they wanted to cook these traditional foods for us so badly, they dispatched two chickens and one of the hogs. Wow. And refused money. I mean, we wound up giving them things, you know, like I gave them a pocket knife and I gave some T-shirts to, you know, we sent one of the PAs back down and gave away as many clothes and possessions as I had to them because- they wanted to show me this food. and How did they prepare it? Well, the chicken was cooked in its own blood, and they used all the meat from the head of the hog to make this very special tamale is the best way to describe it. They made their own version of masa that was made with plantain and other grain. So it's, you know, the only way to travel back in time a thousand years is to eat food that's prepared that way if you're with someone who actually can do it. But the grandmother, who's sort of the matriarch of the group, really wanted me to try it. So, you know, who am I? I mean, you talk about teary moments when at one point we left this in the show. She's holding my hands and said she had a dream that I would show up someday. And then her hope was that because she knew of the modern world. And she said her hope was that other people would see this and not think ill of them because they were ostracized in their own country. You know, I mean, that is. That's powerful stuff. That changes the way you look at the world.
1: Absolutely, absolutely.
0: So the reason I spend you know, so much of my own resources trying to fight for human rights and to do the things that I do, the way that I do them, the reason is because I've had those experiences. And until you're in those places looking into the eyes of someone who seemingly has nothing, but only wants the world to see how her people exist, Uh you realize she actually has everything. She doesn't need things. She has spiritual certainty. (laughs) And she has- Beautifully said. She has a dignity and a worldliness about her that I still aspire to have. And puts life in perspective for you, that's for sure. And I got reminded of that trip after trip after trip after trip.
1: And that's why you're the best cypher for us as an audience and a tremendous ambassador. The Meals That Made Me will be back after this word from our sponsor. So, Andrew, I want to circle back to talking about your father and his influence on you, your view of food, your culinary creations, your skills and approach to the kitchen. Your father exposed you to the international world of food, whether it was taking you on trips to Spain. Um, I know your dad, unfortunately, passed in 2015 at 89, and he was a man who truly lived a really robust life. Now, I lost my dad when I was 23, and I find that a lot of the memories that I shared with my father, especially the later ones, are sort of, for me, like, etched in stone and have taken on this kind of iconic status in my life even the really quotidian stuff that we did that we ate that he said sort of becomes rather than a memory i had of my dad to something sort of you know etched into granite uh, you know in the freeze of some marble building in my mind and food was obviously something that you and your dad shared as a passion as a a bit of craft and and I look at those pictures you post, and so I'm just curious, what was the last really like iconic meal that you either cooked with him or shared with him, or
0: one of the meals that you shared with him that you'll absolutely never forget? Wow. Well, it's it's odd. I you know, I made a list of ten meals that I had in my life, and I was just looking at them while you were running through them and almost all of them. One I had by myself, one was with my mother and all the rest were with him. But I did get to have a last supper with him. I went out to visit him for a weekend several weeks before he died. And he told me, he said, I think I'm well and able enough to go out to a restaurant So my dad was in a wheelchair, and we took him down and into the van, and you know uh, that I had rented and brought him over to his favorite restaurant in Portland, Maine, which was a humble little restaurant behind their building that called what? Do you remember the name? Yeah, yeah, the Back Bay Grill. And we went there, and my dad and I ordered the exact same thing. We had the mussels, and then we had the the wild boar papardelle. And then coffee ice cream, espresso ice cream for dessert, um, which were three of his favorite things to eat and three of my favorite things to eat. And he asked if the this the one manager was there and the fellow who was in charge that night said, oh, no, he's off. And my father said, oh, what a shame. Um, I I wanted to to say goodbye to him. And it struck me the tone that my father was taking. I was like and I thought to myself, oh, my gosh. This is his last dinner out. I mean, it struck me like a thunderbolt. Well, the manager on duty that night called this gentleman, whose name was Adrian. And, uh, you know, 10 minutes later, Adrian shows up. Right. And my father gets, tries to get up to give him a hug. And, you know, he bends down and says, don't get up. And I just, when they had this moment and I saw Adrian kind of welling up with tears. And I knew that this was my father's last meal out in a restaurant, a man for whom Dining out in restaurants was a a a big part of his lifestyle and a huge gift that he had given me and a couple of weeks later I got a phone call from the caretaker in in Maine saying that he had passed away in the middle of the night. It was quite uh it was quite something that that was his last meal out and that we ate the same thing because we both liked that food. I realized how much I'm like my father. I hope that that's how I go out. Moule Mariniere was my father's favorite thing in the world, still my favorite thing in the world. So describe those flavors to me. You just go down to the beach and pull them up uh, and you'd clean them and pull the beards out. And he would sweat shallots in butter and add wine and then cook that down so that it was reduced. So you didn't have too much of that alcoholic flavor in the But the real flavor of the wine throw another knob of butter in uh, the mussels, which then release all their own juices, and as they simmer together, that second knob of butter sort of makes the sauce a little thicker, and then you take all the mussels out and put them in a bowl, throw some chopped parsley in, and pour that sauce over the the mussels. It's really very simple, but That marriage of something so briny, so intensely tasting of the sea, I think it's why we love them so much. For those that love them, it's that intense oceanic brininess. What I find so funny is, looking back on that meal, is that my dad introduced me to mussels when I was three or four years old and showed me how to eat them, cooking them in a pot on the beach. No one bought mussels. My father took me to Tuscany in the winter as a young man, and my father, you know, explained to me because I wanted to have whatever spaghetti with tomato sauce. And he said, no here in this part of Italy, you eat fettuccine or pappardelle with a ragu of wild boar at this month of the year, because that's, that's what you eat. He was the ultimate when in Rome, do what the Romans do guy. And so to have that as our last meal, and when I was a little, little kid, he took me to Bailey's, which was a 150-year-old ice cream shop in Boston that doesn't exist anymore, and treated me to what was called at the time a Broadway Sunday, which was coffee ice cream with homemade hot fudge on it. And coffee ice cream was his favorite ice cream. It's my favorite ice cream. And, and I just remember how much of that last meal really echoed our life together, completely by unintentional because there's no way he would have known that those were the foods that were on the menu that night, nor did I, when we walked into that restaurant yet there, there they were. So it was really quite an experience and it was, it was a really great capstone uh, to our life, to our food life together.
1: What a beautiful memory. What a great story. It just, I I'm there like I transported there. So, This last segment's about the meals of your dreams. Using breakfast, lunch, and dinner as your guidepost with supersonic jet or a teleporter as a means of transport. Take us to where in the world you would wake up, what you would eat, what places you would go to eat around the world throughout this magical day. And for example... And this guy truly is the limit. Like, you could start with a bowl of muesli in Zurich and then finish that same meal with loco and in Waikiki. So, whatever it is,
0: breakfast, lunch, dinner, snacks included, go for it. Breakfast is at the fanciest hotel that I can find in Tokyo or Bangkok that has the most massive buffet of Pan-Asian food cooked so exquisitely that... I have to go back up to my room to go to sleep afterwards because I'm so full. And the, the reason that I choose that is that I love a buffet. I'm not going to waste it on dinner, but the impressive quality of the breakfast buffet. And you can eat like a king at these hotel buffets in those countries. That's that's my favorite kind of breakfast to have. And then go back to sleep. Lunch is at any one of three or four restaurants that I could think of in Venice, Italy, in late June, early July, but magically the gazillions of tourists that descend upon that city in the warm weather months are all sleeping in that day.
1: What are you eating at these restaurants
0: in Venice? All of the pickled fish, all of the seafood fritti, the incredible crudos of that town. I mean, people call it crudos now. They're listed on menus as Carpaccio's place. But what the Venetians do with raw fish that comes out of their marketplace is absolutely brilliant. So where are you going for dinner? The beach of my childhood on Long Island eating clam, cherry stone clams, not little necks. I don't want those little ones. I want cherry stone clams. I want my grandmother's roast chicken. And I I want espresso ice cream for dessert because that last meal, but that place, those things... If I had one meal to have anywhere, anyplace, that would have been my answer. If it was last meal, that's my answer. If it's where are you are going to have dinner, that's my answer. It's a great answer. It doesn't matter because it's, it's about how you feel. You know, people always say to me, well, why do you always talk about J.G. Mellon's as having the best hamburger in New York? And it's like, well, because of how I feel when I'm in that room. That room is where I kissed my first girl. It's where I had my first drink. It was the hangout. Of my childhood, it's how you feel in the room. It's how you're treated. That place in the 70s was my clubhouse. And in the same way, that beach, those memories, I wanna smell that air. I wanna, I mean, that's what makes the chicken so good is not just what's on my plate, but where you're eating it. That's
1: one of the things, by the way, that I've always loved about your appreciation of food. I don't know, you are the Virgil to our Dante in this culinary inferno, so to speak. So before I go into any more obscure literary references, I'm going to hit you with our final section, which is the rapid fire. So you
0: ready for the uh, this little barrage I'm going to hit you with, bud? Okay. Best pizza topping, just great dough with fantastic crushed tomatoes caramelized in a wood-burning oven is about as good as pizza gets to me. Okay, best vegetable to eat raw? Oh my gosh, best vegetable to eat raw radish. Favorite cookbook of all time? James Beard's Theory and Practice of Good Cooking. Favorite condiment? Anything spicy? Give me one of them,
1: Doba? Uh, Jog excellent choice. Best dip for french
0: fries? Ketchup. Favorite kitchen appliance? I think the one I become addicted to the most because it, it does so much for me is a very, very complex, high-speed blender that also heats and cools.
1: Favorite song you like to cook to? Oh,
0: my God. I have a whole Spotify playlist of just songs to play while I'm cooking, but when I walk into my own kitchen, the song that probably plays in my head as much as any other is Alejandro Escovedo's, I Like Her Better When She Walks Away.
1: Deep cut. Okay, so this is a special one for you. But I'm going to straight up ask this, and I don't want to get too far down the rabbit hole, and I know it's hard to encapsulate. When this occurred, apart from just texting each other how much we loved each other and just checking in, we never really got down on it. So just for right now, tell me one thing you miss about Tony. (sighs) Talking about our kids. Well, I have to just say, um, you and Tony Bourdain, I've said this before on social media, I read a quote that says uh, the measure of a great man is how they treat lesser men. And I'm not trying to diminish myself in some kind of fake obsequy or whatever, but you guys led by example and took me under your wings and you personally have advocated for me when no one did, gave me opportunities when that was not the going concern and have empathized with my own struggles as a presenter, producer, host, TV personality. And I can say confidently that I am, excuse me, I am a better me for knowing you. I'm a better host. I'm a better producer. I'm a better personality. And in many ways, I am a better man because I know you, Andrew Zimmern. Well, thank you. And I owe you so much. You owe me me
0: nothing. You owe owe me nothing. The reason I've asked this question three times I've been with a a person who I believe to have more on the ball than others. All were tribal holy people. And I asked – I took the opportunity to ask all of them what the meaning of life was. And I don't mean to sound like Caddyshack, but, I mean, you know, when you're in front of someone who you believe – is in some way, I'll just use the word supernatural, has a connection to something inexplicable. And I asked all of them, they all said the same thing. They said, the purpose of life is to love each other and do things for other people. Mm -hmm. And I firmly believe that more than anything. And it's a goal, right? I mean, you try to carry that with you all the time. I I mentor a lot of a lot of people in my life as a recovering person, and I've made no secret that I've been sober for what now, 30 and a half years and do a lot of uh, service work in that community. And the most important thing that I try to talk to other people about is this idea that love is love is a verb and you act your way into right thinking, you don't think your way into right acting. And if you remind yourself that love is a verb, and if you remind yourself that acting your way in life is the way to do it, then you try to become that kind of human being. It is a, it's a very, very important thing to me. Absolutely. So without getting more (laughs)
1: emotional and making this less cathartic and more pleasurable for our listeners, what else you got going
0: on? Where can the beautiful people find you? New restaurants, new shows. All things me are at andrewzimmern.com. It's the easiest thing to do. Head there. Check
1: out. He actually has really dope merch and he's a superb human being. Thank you so much for joining us for Andrew Zimmern's edition of the meals that made me we hope you enjoyed this career-spanning interview with andrew that you are now inspired to dive deeper into the meals of your childhood your mentors your travels and the meals that continue to take you places now and into the future join us next time as we chat with top chef master chef and restaurateur extraordinaire my friend anita lowe this podcast is produced by First We Feast in collaboration with Complex Networks. Our host is me, Adam Richmond. Our executive producers are Chris Schoenberger, Nicola Lynch, and Justin Bolas. Our head of podcast production is Jen Stewart. Our supervising producer is Shiva Bayat. Our senior producer is Jocelyn Aram. Our associate producers are Nina Pollock and Catherine Hernandez. Our production managers are Shamara Rochester and Natasha Bennett. Our recording engineer and sound designer is Andrew Guastella. Thanks to the team at BuzzFeed. For more First We Feast content, head to youtube.com slash first we feast or at first we feast on Instagram, Facebook, and TikTok. If you enjoy these interviews and you want to hear more, then please drop a five-star review and we We'll see you next time on The Meals That Made Me.